Welcome to the Daily Objective. Today we talk about psychology and about the tendency that many of us have. I definitely do have that tendency, which is to catastrophize. Now, you can find catastrophize in many different names, but it basically means you assume the worst or you are prepared for the worst or your whole life is taken over by always thinking that the worst is just around the corner. This is the non-professional's definition. But we also have the professional today to make us understand, to help us understand this topic better. So we have Gina Gorlin. Gina is soon to be a professor at Austin University. She has been around the objectivist circles for very long. She won the founder essay contest two consecutive years, which I think is still a, a record. Uh, she also has won the Razi Ginsberg Best Ocon Talk, uh, which is a, an informal uh, award that we have uh, among ourselves. And I saw Gina recently at Ocon giving a talk about uh, the topic, which is also related to her latest endeavor at Substack, where she has a, a Substack called Building the Builders. And she describes it, exploring the moral psychology of ambitions of ambitious creators, what it is, why it matters and how to build it. So thank you very much, Gina, for being with us. And also we have Mark, Mark Pellegrino, who is going to join us in this discussion about catastrophizing. So Gina, tell us a bit more about what catastrophizing is and why do people who are rational, people who have read everything about run, they know the, uh, the benevolent universe premise, blah, 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 and yet they tend also to catastrophize. So what's the deal with catastrophizing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you introduced it very nicely. I think the most important thing I can say about it, at least just to give us all a framework, is that there's a valid and really useful kind of thinking of which catastrophizing should at least look like a rogue sister or an analog, which is, you know, we plan for the future, right? We need to think about the plausible ways that our plans could you know, go wrong, could go right. Like that's part of being reality oriented, right? Is being sort of, is having our eyes open to, you know, with the current economic downturn, for example, you know, the best startup founders, the best financial kind of gurus out there that I know, they're really, they're thinking vigilantly about, you know, how bad could this get? And how do we need to prepare? And, you know, do we need to preemptively lay some people off or tighten up our budget, right? And so they're being extremely vigilant about thinking through things that could go wrong, right? And you might think, well, this looks a lot like what you're talking about, where we think about every possible bad outcome that could happen and then dwell on it. But I think there's a really crucial difference, and it's a difference that we can really only experience fully through introspection, which is like, why are we doing it? Or as psychologists might say, what function is it actually serving for us? Are we doing it in the spirit of figuring out what to do, right? Like wanting to take action, wanting to be sort of prepared, wanting to advance our valued goals and needing to keep our eyes on the road, right? In order to do that. Or, and I should say and or, because these things can be packaged together in really confusing ways, which is part of the, the challenge of you know, kind of getting over some of the less constructive tendencies, but, and, or are we trying in some way to reassure ourselves? Are we trying to relieve our anxiety? Are we trying to chase after an illusion of control? 
that we don't actually have, right? Are we trying to kind of give ourselves a temporary fix of illusory certainty, right? Where certainty actually isn't available because there's, you know, only so much we can know about all the kind of details of what the future will hold, right? And it's that that is the real catastrophizing. It's planning gone awry, right? It's pseudo planning that sort of just takes this neurotic form of constant worry. Right. So you use the term acting, overacting, and acting in the illusion that we can have control. And this reminds me something I've heard from uh, Edith Packer, where she talks about the compulsive personality. And I've read this again, having a personal uh, vibe to that, that I recognize myself in that, which says that because there are some things that we don't have control on, and the number one thing is things that could happen to our health, that it's not based on us, let's say, not based on, oh, I'm drinking a lot, I'm going to destroy my liver, but you know, at some point we're going to get old, there are some diseases that we cannot control. And yet, because you have this uh, idea that there's a disaster just by the corner, you take impulsive action. So it could be, for example, you overtrack your diet, you jump in weird diets, or you, you do various things. But she says that action is, it gives you the idea that you have control. But the point is, what is there to do if not take some action? Is an action, even if it gives us, let's say, a 1% that uh, it's going to protect us from a bad disease, isn't it better than doing nothing? That is a good question. And I think in some of the examples you just cited, even as you're doing it, if you ask yourself that question in a serious, honest way, you'd probably know the answer. Mm-hmm. Where if what you're doing is you're spending another half hour Googling, you know, kind of like the same set of websites that have the same set of like poorly researched fad, you know, largely bogus claims about how to vouchsafe your nutritional, you know, well-being or your health or whatever, or how to lose another pound or how to protect yourself from X, Y, Z illness, where like, you know, you're not actually increasing your knowledge base you're spending more time without actually gaining more insight, right? And, or you're taking, so there are lots of classic, what in psychology we call like safety behaviors, which are behaviors we engage in to give ourselves the temporary illusion of control of problem solving at the cost of the continued compulsive dependence on these behaviors because they're not actually solving anything, right? So this is like, you know, someone who seeks constant reassurance from their doctor who, it, if, since we're talking about health anxiety, which is one of many ways this can manifest, right? Where you constantly, where you go for frequent checkups and you're just constantly getting the same answer. Like, nope, scan is still coming up negative. There's nothing wrong with, you know, where your doctor is kind of rolling your eyes, rolling their eyes. Like you're fine. Like you're just, you know, using up your insurance money or, you know, or whatever the case may be. Or you are constantly asking friends over and over again for, you know, well, how is your, like, how are your symptoms? Or, you know, people who have kind of gone down COVID rabbit holes where they're constantly trying to like vigilantly monitor for like, oh, oh, shoot, do I have long COVID? Do I have the kind of complications? And there's nothing, it's it's sort of an arbitrary question, right? And this is where the kind of Rand's distinction between, you know, the arbitrary, right? And any claim that has some sort of epistemic status because there's like some 
basis in reality for at least entertaining it, right? Like the, the kind of chasm between arbitrary and possible is vast because arbitrary stuff, you could just make up an infinity of arbitrary possibilities, right? Without needing any kind of evidence to, to kind of ground you. And those are often the kinds of things that we quote, take action on without mm -hmm. the action actually adding up to anything because the claim doesn't add up to anything. <laughs> it's but like why does you know, the catastrophizer big... or the obsessive person again? I'm using these terms not with their clinical obviously meaning, but why does that person do that? They they hate it. They wish they would get rid of it. So they it's not that they find the satisfaction in it. Why do rational people continue to do that, although they know it's uh, it's soul destroying? It's a great question. So if you introspect it. The fact is it brings relief. There's, it's not that it's not doing anything for us because you're right, we, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't be tempted to do it. We wouldn't struggle with it this much, right? It gives us something temporary and ultimately illusory, but mm -hmm. it feels very compelling. It's like, okay, as of today, at least I don't have COVID, right? I <laughs> took another test too. And it feels good. And it feels like, okay, I've done something. I've, you know, I finally, I've checked this off my list. Now, tomorrow rolls around or, you know, I go to the grocery <laughs> store and now I've been within six feet of somebody again, or, you know, whatever the, okay, well, now I have to worry about it all over. And now that's going to preoccupy me. But partly because I'm chasing that next fix, right? And the fix is real and it feels good, right? It's bringing us relief. Just like, you know, if we, if the things we catastrophize about are more social, because not everybody catastrophizes about health. Some people, you know, catastrophize about, does my friend still like me? Or, you know, are they gonna, have I offended them somehow? Or, you know, am I on the way to losing this job because they're secretly all conspiring against me, you know, or whatever the case may be, who may <coughs> frequent reassurance in various subtle ways or not so subtle ways, you know, just kind of texting someone like, hey, how are you doing today? I heard this joke, but it's not really because you think the joke is funny. It's because you want to see if they'll write back and if they'll sound angry, right? And it's the same sort of, it's like, it gives you that, oh, okay, they wrote back. So they don't hate me today. And that feels really good. <laughs> like your values that you deeply care about, you know, it's still there. It's still yours until another hour goes by. And then who knows again, right? So, so, it so can I ask a question? It seems like this, this uh, on the personal level comes from intense insecurity and a desire to control the environment. Something, of course, has to be the cause of that in, in a person's early development, what do you say about the catastrophizing that's taking place on a wider level, on a social level, like our, our entire system, climate change, for example, is being catastrophized. Um, the, the COVID stuff, catastrophized. Everything around us is being pushed to the limit to, to put us in, a, seemingly to put us in a state of fear and anxiety and to feel less in control of our environment. What do you, what do you think is, are the causes similar or, or, or different? So... I mean, the biggest thing I have to say, which will be disappointing to our listeners, is that I, the more we start talking about the kind of macro, like social, cultural, political level, the less qualified I am, because that those just aren't the causes I study. You know, I just don't have the kind of expertise in sort of like what are the, you know, the domino effects that operate at that kind of macro cultural level. But I can certainly, I can speak to how it both affects individual psychologies and you know, some of the ways that I see like particular leaders or particular commentators exhibiting their own 
individual pronenesses to, you know, so, to some of these traits or some of these insecurities. So it, outside of that, I'll just be purely speculating and I'm no more qualified than the next, you know. But I mean, it just seems to me that, you, you know, when you look at a, a genre like the horror genre, the early horror genre, like Frankenstein, for example, it, it seemed to be a check on hubris, right? Like, uh, you know, people thought that men were getting too confident and they needed to see the dark side of their achievements, the dark potentials of their achievements, so they wouldn't reach too high. And I just, I just wonder if the same, the same sort of massive self-esteem issues uh, allows these catastrophizing circumstances to have an impact on us. Yeah, like I we're mean, we're, we're we can't we can't handle this. We can't handle that. We can't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, we see a lot of that in the culture. So, you know, I think we can all kind of do our own observing and pattern recognizing in terms of, wow, yeah, there's, I mean, we just in terms of the rates of depression and anxiety and that they are rising and they're especially rising, you know, among the youth, but certainly not exclusively. And that we see that there's a lot of existential angst. There's a lot of fear that there's, you know, a lot of the kind of polarization that's really coming from, you know, kind of primitive fight or flight re reactions and not from really thought out opposition or, you know, kind of more values driven, thoughtful dialogue, right? And, and I think that's widely acknowledged that our culture really seems to be imperiled in some of these ways. Then we can, of course, try to dissect that more in some of the ways that, you know, cultural commentators might be more adept at. But yeah, I mean, it certainly, to the extent that individuals are already prone to some catastrophizing, I mean, the current state of the media and of, you know, of politics exacerbates that massively. And among the various catastrophizing and sort of safety uh, seeking behaviors that I've seen, certainly there's an uptick in people just like refreshing social media and refreshing whatever their particular, you know, echo chamber diet of, uh, of news and cultural commentary and becoming just really going down those rabbit holes in unconstructed ways. And here's the weird thing. You mentioned something that sounds like doom scrolling. So at the very, 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 yes. very early days of uh, COVID, I was doing doom scrolling. But I, I was doing it from something that I considered a healthy premise, which is give me some good news. I want to find something good, something to be relieving. So also the catastrophizer doesn't want to hear the bad news. The catastrophizer wants to hear... So could we say that there is some virtue in the catastrophizer in terms of that he's, he's trying, as you said, he, the catastrophizer is after values. The catastrophizer wants to make sure he's healthy, wants to make sure his uh, girlfriend still loves him, that uh, he's not left out of the group. So is this, a, is this a value or is this, and again, this is from Edith uh, Parker when I was reading her, who said that, quite often such personalities don't hold these values as very tightly held values, but they just see them as kind of a duty, you know, as they don't really understand them. It's their whole life is a struggle, basically. As part of that struggle, they have good values, but because they cannot experience the good thing of these values, they just experience them as struggles and as constantly being on the, on the threat. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you're, I think you're referring to a lot of different things that can coexist in the same person and that can exist in different people. And I don't, I can't really speak to the particulars of what 
Cesar Edith Packer was on about, but I can tell you from kind of my own, you know, research and, and framework, there are counterfeit forms of any given value pursuit of any given mental process that we could engage in. This is something I've really been sort of thinking about is that, and those counterfeit forms will often prey on our virtues and prey on our genuine values-based, you know, cares and concerns. So the one is definitely not mutually exclusive with the other. And there, there are many forms of sort of defensive, neurotic, uh, kind of obsessiveness, compulsiveness, and sort of, you know, rabbit holing that I have seen the best people be the most prone to by and large. So it is definitely not the case that, you know, they're like, you have to be a bad person or you have to lack in really deep, genuine, you know, values and, and virtues to succumb to these things. And it's still doing something different for you in a discernible way that we can learn to discern within ourselves and learn to really you know, you know, the quote about there, we all have two wolves in us. And the question is, which wolf do we feed? I just keep coming back to that. It's just so useful because these are two wolves and we can think about it as like, which one are we feeding when we do this type of doom scrolling or that type of doom scrolling, or we spend, you know, another 30 minutes Googling this symptom or that, right? And the thing to be checking for within ourselves, again, it's right now, what I'm doing by, you know, and it could be that it shifts from one to the other over time. Like it could be, I started out with, you know, the, the intention was not to doom scroll. The intention was A, to just like stay informed and up to date on current affairs because that is useful to a point, right? And gives me something in a common context with friends and, you know, keeps me from getting blindsided. In my case, for example, by clients who will bring up the latest shooting and then I just won't know what they're talking about and be a deer in headlights. Oops, okay, no, I need to stay at least a little bit informed, right? And then at some point did it, or looking for good news, which I think is a great, you know, often can be a very useful thing to kind of have a radar for, right? But then at some point, maybe it devolved into just like trying to relieve your anxiety, right? Or trying to give yourself that sort of, that kind of illusion of certainty, illusion of control past the point where you yourself seriously believe that you're going to get it, <laughs> right? And that's a really key distinction. It's like, is this that maybe you're honestly mistaken and you have some model in your head of like, I will be able to answer this question if I get some more data on this, you know, the prevalence of this virus or whatever. But at some point you might just be able to say, if you really sort of pause and reflect and you ask yourself the hard question of like, would I swear in court that another half hour of scrolling will get me more confidence about this, right? Like, do I actually believe that, <laughs> right? Do I actually see that as possible as opposed to just like a fantasy that I'm nursing, right? That's, that's, a, that's a great quote and I will, uh, I will make a mental note of it. Let's go to some uh, super chats. Before that, I didn't mention in the beginning, it goes without saying, Obviously, Gina is her own person. She doesn't speak here as, let's say, this is objectivism applied in psychology. I mentioned Edith Piker. This doesn't mean she, she's in the same right. school of thought <laughs> or, or whatever. So Gina is basically discussing with two people who just have a very, at least myself, very vague, if any, understanding of all this. So, but uh, and I'm, I mentioned this because the next question is on Ayn Rand and psychology. So I'm just making this making this clear. So before that, a big thank you to Marilyn and to Kiana for your contribution. So Nathan says, and thank you very much, Nathan, generous contribution. 
before I run, did anyone else in the field of psychology view emotions as rooted in one's values? What are some other theories of emotions in psychology today or in the past? Hmm. Good question. So before, so I mean, if Aristotle spoke of it, I think he would have had a pretty aligned view. So if we looked to, to philosophy, we would probably find at least some prior uh, insight to the effect that emotions come from values. And I think even in literature, I think there would have been some insight to the effect of, you know, your passions get stirred when you're, uh, I'm like Hugo seems like, you know, an author who surely must have had at least some implicit insight into that because he leverages it, right, to great dramatic effect in, in terms of how he, what the, the kinds of trials and tribulations through which he puts his characters and that their emotions are reflections of their values in ways that we can kind of trace causally, right? And we see them change. And when their minds change, their feelings change. So I really, I don't think that that's, you know, I think there's certain insights that are just really distinctive to Rand and that really just nobody had put together before. I doubt this is one of them because it just seems like the kind of, I mean, I think she put it in a fresh way and she connected it. You know, she sort of put it in the context of a whole, philosophical framework that also helps us understand where values come from and that they can be objective and that they can be mistaken. And, you know, so, so there's a ton that she's added to our understanding, but the idea, but in terms of like theories of emotions, I think there've been competing theories along the fault lines of do emotions come from ideas or are they more primitive or more basic or more, uh, more, more hardwired in us. Um, so like Hume, for example, I know was of the kind of, you know, there's no arguing with passions and that passions are just sort of innate inclinations that we can't reason our way into or out of. And then we just have to sort of reason about them and around them. So he clearly, you know, had an opposing view and behaviorists within psychology, I think largely kind of took up the mantle of we, we can't look inside of nor make any causal sense of the role of thinking and ideas and you know these ephemeral internal processes of the mind and so we're going to only really give sort of causal powers and we're, we're only going to theorize about what's observable and therefore you know what's kind of behaviorally physically manifested so you know emotions on that model are conditioned behavioral responses in effect to environmental stimuli that we've been either, you know, that, that we've learned to associate just through kind of a, a learning history of seeing them paired with other things. You know, we feel fear when the snake rattles in the bush and that, you know, for a behaviorist, that's because in the past we've gotten stung or because something bad has happened or just because we saw someone else freak out when they saw the snake. And so we learned to pair snake with fear, right? Or whatever it may be. So a very kind of non-cognitive account and now there are also accounts that are more uh, sort of biological where you know emotions reflect our evolved predisposition to you know we have a snake fearing module that gets activated more easily than other fears because evolutionarily we would have died if we didn't avoid the snake so there is something to, okay this is going to somewhere else but uh, okay actually let me reframe it Many objectivists, I was one of them, we are very eager to say, oh, we can control every emotion, uh, mental illnesses, uh, whatever, it doesn't exist, it's because you have bad premises, whatever. 
I remember you, Gina, saying in an episode of the Yaron Brook show that no, this is not the same. It had it was such a boom to me. I even remember where I was. I was in the stairs oh. going to the lobby in my from my office to my university building. I was like, oh, what? Do you you mean that it's not if I fix my premises, no one is ever gonna have uh, mental health issues again? Oh, that's <laughs> That, that means a lot. I mean, and it sounds like you have a strong associative memory there, you know, based on an emotional and a stamp yeah. of significance on the particular place you happen to be walking through. So that's fun. <laughs> so for people who want to find that conversation, since it was at Yorks and Jones, probably circa early 2018, Gina was in Yaron Brookso and she clarified many of these things. Next question is from... Oh, is that it? Okay. <laughs> so I don't have to re-clarify it. Oh yeah, no, no uh, you can you can, but it's not uh, directly on the topic. But uh, so that I don't speak in your behalf, uh, be better you to tell something on the topic. Uh, that's okay. I mean, we don't have to go on okay. further tangent. Just, yeah, just, as long as I answered the question. Of the, yes, the, the question was answered. We have two more questions. Looks, uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. There's a happy emoji thing, not a question, but thanks for the contribution. <laughs> Enric says, looks like social media is used for ineffective reassurance and to some extent promotes it. Uh, definitely, Eric, particularly again, the beginning of uh, COVID when we are so desperate to find out the one thing that, you, oh, if I only take more vitamin D. And again, I, there's something healthy in it. But as Gina said, the question is, ask yourself why you're doing it, why you really do it. Marilyn says, what should I watch for to strike a balance between catastrophizing and taking reasonable precaution to take care of myself? Excellent question. Thank you, Marilyn. Gina. Good. Good. Yeah. So there are a few tools here. So, you know, the thing you're watching for is what we were talking about, right? Whether you're pursuing a genuine goal in reality of getting to some sort of uh, contextual certainty that you don't already have and believe you could get, or you're spinning your wheels in some way in order to feel as if you're doing that, right? Like that's really the distinction. Are you actually trying to, trying to sort of engage in a process of probing reality in order to inform your action? Or are you somehow giving, trying to give yourself the illusion of doing that? Like the feeling of, okay, somehow this is going to make me more certain or make me more safe or make me more you know, in control or whatever, as to how, because easier said than done, right? Well, how do we know which one we're doing? There's a ton of tools and I can just name a couple of them that seem high leverage for a lot of people, you know, for me, for a lot of people I've worked with. So one is, so there are nice kind of heuristics. There's a little worry tree that I sometimes will give out to my clients that is like a little, you know, little decisional algorithm that just for any given thought that pops into your head or for any, you know, you could use this both for a thought or for like a, a line of action, like, you know, should I or shouldn't I spend another hour scrolling or, or kind of take whatever precautionary step I want to be taking or whatever, just should I be thinking about this? You know, you take that as the input. And then there are a couple questions you ask yourself. You know, one is, is this a current problem or a hypothetical problem? Okay, if you're meaning like, is it something that's sort of like already happening right now that needs problem solving? Or is it like something that might potentially happen, but I don't have evidence of it happening now? Okay. If it's a current problem, so, okay, what, what's my plan for solving it? Okay. Easy enough. Make a plan, solve it, stop worrying. If it's a hypothetical problem, okay. Is it a hypothetical problem on which I, A, for which I have any sort of evidence, you know, to suggest that I may need to worry about it. B, that I could do anything about even if so, 
right? Like that I could plausibly take action on. If no, let go of the worry. If yes, okay, what could I do? And do I want to do that now or do I want to do that later? Either do it or defer it, <laughs> right? And so it's just a little, little algorithm like that. Now at every step, you still have that alternative before me, right? We have volitional agency over sort of how we choose to think about the questions and whether we answer them honestly or whether we sort of answer them in a more motivated, you know, what psychologists call motivated reasoning, where the motivation is something other than the truth, right? When we, when we ask ourselves, is this actionable? Or when we ask ourselves, do I have evidence? Like, is there any condition in which we would actually say no, right? Like kind of checking with ourselves on, do, you know, am I being realistic with myself here? Or would I find a way to tell myself that I need to keep thinking about this no matter what, right? So at every step, we sort of want to be checking in on our own, what I call self-honesty, right? And, but again, but each branch leads to letting go the worry, right? Either you let it go after you solve it, you let it go because it's not real or actionable, you know, or useful right now. You let it go because you've deferred and made a plan to solve it later. But it, you know, it, but, but each branch leads to a resolution of, okay, I don't need to keep dwelling on this anymore, right? So that's one tool. Another is what we call the kind of scheduled worry or postponing worry strategy, which I've just found sort of shockingly helpful for how simple it is. I wrote a whole article on it. If you want to check out in my, the, in that building, the builders Substack. Um, I think it's called worrying on schedule, something like that. Uh, um, I'll from, take it. Uh, uh, I think. Go for it. Yeah. yeah so worrying on schedule, Gina. So this is on your person. No, actually it is on Substack. On my Substack. Yeah. Worrying on schedule, it's from April. What, what founders and people with generalized anxiety disorder have in common? Okay, yeah. Yes. So it's in the, within the context of the builders. Yeah, but it's uh, actually I'm putting it, I'm, I'm sending it to the producer and then our great producer is going to put it on the chat and be yes. of help to everyone. Amazing. Yeah, so that will tell you specifically about the strategy and th there's a worksheet that it links to that you can use to just for inspiration, you don't have to follow it verbatim, but it's just, it's a useful kind of heuristic general guide. But the basic idea is to just schedule and delimit the time you spend each day and, and where you do it and sort of how you do it, you, the time you spend on whatever worrying you do. So that whether or not, even if you're not sure how much of it is useful and how much of it is catastrophizing, you're at least exercising agency over how much of your bandwidth and how much of your sort of time in life it gets to take up. Right. And then oftentimes what I find is when someone does that in this really intentional way, just by being this intentional and also by insisting that you write it down, which I also I find that to be a crucial element of the exercise by doing it on paper where you can sort of hold yourself accountable and kind of just see your, for yourself what you're writing. Very often, most of the worries will dissolve of their own accord and the rest you'll realize either, oh, yeah, no, I can deal with this next week and I shouldn't, I don't need to be thinking about it before then because it will add nothing to my life. There's just, there's nothing actionable until I have this call and then I find out whether or not I need to worry for, you know, or whatever, or it's just something that you can deal with then and there, right? But almost always it leads to the kind of dissolution of whatever seemingly pressing and pervasive worries uh, were otherwise on our minds. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, by the way, this is so valuable. I'm almost, uh, it, it's what they say, I can't believe this is for free. So, but ah, it is, awesome. and it's on, it's on the article. Again, it's on Substack. So I, I had checked that and I found this very, very interesting. I encourage people to check it. So our friend uh, Jaime, I think I pronounced it right, with some Mexican dollar uh, pesos. Thank you very much for your contribution and thank you very much for your support, uh, our friend Jaime. So, uh, Mark, last question from you to Gina, and then I have a concluding question. I don't, do, you, do you ever find anybody um, particularly resistant, even after all this conscious effort, um, that they 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 still habitually cling to the worry? Sure. And I mean, I would say that's almost more the rule than the exception, at least at first, because I think we have <laughs> to recognize like these habits are really deeply wired in us by the time we're even you know, old enough to worry about them, right? And to seek some sort of help and support for them. They're, I mean, it's not so unlike an addiction. And I often will draw this analogy and I'm not alone in drawing it. You know, this is something psychologists have sort of figured out that there's a lot of the same mechanisms at play. You know, if anyone struggled with, you know, quitting smoking or with an alcohol problem or a video game problem or you name it, right? Whatever the addiction, it can take on a life of its own, right? It can become extremely, it's sort of like, it's compartmentalized. It, it gets sort of detached from the rest of your character where you can be a really courageous and really you know, self-disciplined person in all these other contexts of your life, except when it comes to this thing. And then it's like, it owns you, it controls you, it overpowers you, right? And then whatever defense mechanisms, whatever kind of subtle self-deceptions we've learned to use on ourselves to kind of rationalize that behavior, those are the things that, you know, the, the first things that we can at least set aside and they're still going to keep coming back and they're subtle and we have to watch for them, but they're just step one, because once we've set aside the coping strategies, the habit still remains and we still need to figure out a way to mix it. Right. And the temptation still remains and it eats up real bandwidth emotionally, mentally, it can be really exhausting just to keep having to reassert the context and to remind ourselves like, Nope, this is actually not useful to me. And I know it feels really useful. And I know my mind has a billion excuses right now, a billion arguments to give me for why it's really, really important that I keep thinking about this, but nope, I actually know better. And I'm actually like, that's work, right? And sometimes we're exhausted and we just, we don't have it in us to do that work. And we're just going to end up ruminating and catastrophizing because that's the default, right? That's the autopilot. And so I think it's important to recognize that like, this is work and it's going to take a while. And do you, and do you, and do you try to acclimate them to the discomfort that they're going to have to feel throughout this whole process? Very Pretty much. much so. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Glad you mentioned that because that you know tolerating discomfort, tolerating distress is just an inescapable theme of a lot of the work I do to help people change because change is uncomfortable. It's pushing against a lot of inertia, right? A lot of resistance. Mm. So this covers also the question that I had, which is what to do. And uh, the meme uh, in the objectivist world says there's a nine-run quote for everything. I will change it. There's a Gina blog uh, article for everything. <laughs> I wish that were true. I'm working on <laughs> amassing that kind of library. But thank you for that. Because but this is from Psychology <laughs> Today. So you wrote an article called What It Really Looks Like to Rebuild Your Soul. Uh, this yes. is from 2020. 
And uh, there you also mentioned some things on how this catastrophizing leaves some traces. But when you reach a point where uh, you can, in a way, you can see them and almost observe them, or not really yet maybe laugh at them, but almost observe and say, oh, it's here that guy again. But now he's not a threatening guy. He's almost this kind of sad person. Like, yeah, he thinks he, he still thinks he has a say. Therefore, uh, you know, that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, again, the, I, I mentioned this because this article uh, also, I got a lot of value of it. So it, it's called what it really looks like to rebuild your soul. If you put or if you Google psychology today, Gina, what it looks like to rebuild your soul, you will find it. Okay, so. Uh, upcoming tonight, 9 p.m. UK time. It's Harry Binswagger time. Topic today is Objectives versus Academic Philosophy, follow-up from last week, part two. And last announcement, tomorrow, 7 p.m. UK time, uh, there's the Fountainhead Book Club with Lisa and with Susanna, and it will also be live streamed to YouTube members. So YouTube members are doing quite, uh, we're doing quite well in YouTube members as a sign of appreciation. Tomorrow, the Fountainhead Book Lab will be live streamed. There's a link in the chat. Gina, once more, thank you very much for the work you are doing. I encourage people to go back to these articles and to these episodes when they fall in these traps of this behavior. Of course, it's not going to solve the problem, but it puts it in its proper perspective and uh, it's, it's very helpful. So in terms of where we can find more stuff, uh, it's also the, the Substack, as I said, Building the Builders. So it's Gina Substack. Yeah, you can subscribe. Steady stream. Yeah, you can subscribe and you can get, uh, you can get uh, updates. And also keep an eye for Gina's Ocon Talk. Ocon Talks are slowly being released. More of them are going to be released after August. It was a, it was a very good, uh, obviously, a talk to remember. Mark, parting words. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's it's great to hear you. This, this this was very constructive for me as well. That's what that's why I sat back and listened most of the time. I have a lot to learn about it. Zina, we learned a lot from you as always. Thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. Can I insert one final little closing distinction for everybody to think about on the tolerating distress point? Look for the difference between growing pains and stagnation pains. Just gonna throw that out mm. there because I've been mm. I, I've been finding it useful. So more growing more pains, growing pains, fewer stagnation pains. That's what we're stagnation pains. Okay, Wait, I have another question, but I don't know. We're at the end of the oh. thing. I just but I, I just wanted to. Is it possible? Sorry, is it possible okay. that one could actually look forward to the growing pains, like you do a workout? When you know, first yeah. the workout is really st stressful in all the wrong ways. Then it's stressful in all the right ways. Yes. I definitely have rewired my soul, weirdly enough, you know, through over a decade of this type of thing. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's at least a part of me that looks forward to and an equally large part of me that still dreads the, whatever the growing pain of, you know, like doing a really scary interview or talk, thankfully this no longer falls in that category, but you know, some still do. But definitely there's a part of me that like, I know I'm going to feel really brave and I know I'm going to you know, it's going to be a rarefied moment of drama and growth and authenticity. And I love that. And I dig it and I crave it. So you can definitely learn to love it. Awesome. Thanks again, both. That was a lot of value. See you soon. Thank you. My pleasure.
Thanks, everyone.